And I want you to open your Bible this morning to the book of John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 15 and 1 John chapter 3. Big John and Little John. Everybody is called as a Christian to relate to God. If you're a Christian, God has brought you to him that you might know him. You got to believe that. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We don't know a lot of things that we should know, many things that we don't know about him. But having become Christian, God wants us to now learn of him. Because his way of life is to become our way of life. He is a pattern. We are to walk the way he walked. We sing the song to be like Jesus, don't we? And so we are in our learning process. I believe it's God's intention that we discover the kind of person he was and perhaps why he was so effective and maybe why we're not. It seems like something has been left out. But it all begins with a relationship. And the word that describes what a relationship is supposed to be in John chapter 15 begins in verse 4. And this word abide that we're going to start with is used five times in the next three or four verses. So anytime the Lord uses the same word five times, there is something there that we must understand. For example, he begins in verse 4 by saying, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. This is a whole other sermon and a series of them. But bearing fruit is required. That is a necessity, a display of something in our life that is come forth from Christ. It's got to be there. Bear much fruit. But you can't, and we can't bear what he accepts, except first of all, we're abiding in him. Verse five, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Now he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Does your Bible say that? Now, how many of you know that we are busy, though, doing something? Historically, the church has always been busy. Sometimes the right way, many times the wrong way. Man has devised a way that to him is more suitable than the way God has said. And so he adapts himself to his own ways, the way he sees it. He adjusts it for the time of the culture. You know, that worked then, but you know, today this is probably what we ought to do. And so he's no longer doing exactly what the Lord says. And the fruit that he's bearing, we don't want to admit this, but the fruit that they're bearing is not acceptable because it's not the way God said to do it. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Didn't he say that? Well, we shouldn't run from that. That's what the Bible says. In verse 6, if a man abide not in me, this is what happens. He is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. 
That's not good. But that's the consequence of a bad choice that Christians make or that people make of being unwilling to abide in the Lord. And then the classic verse in verse 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's what happens. Like Christ, like Jesus did, whatever you ask, you'll get it. Again, verse 7. You shall ask what you will and what? It shall be done. And yet we're wondering today, after all these years of being Christian, we still wonder why that's not working right. So we would have to agree that there's something we're leaving out. See, the word abide simply means to remain. It means to dwell. It's a choice you have to make that he wants you to make. He will not make you abide in him, but he wants you to. That's it. That's the right kind of a choice to make. Now, in 1 John 3 and verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him. Now, the word dwelleth, and abide are the same words. So let's add this to the mix. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll have such a relationship with the Lord that whatever you ask for, he'll give it to you. Because as you abide with him and you become in close fellowship with the Lord, your heart will change to know what is right and wrong for you and in your life. And it also means in 1 John chapter 3, but to abide specifically means that we, one, believe what he said, two, we love our brothers and sisters, and 24 says, you keep his commandments, and this is the way we abide in him. At the end of verse 24, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he has given to us. So then, here's what we come to. If we're going to abide in the Lord, it means we're going to have to abide in a certain and a specific way. God's going to give us a word that will direct our steps. Many want to change it. Many don't want to walk that way. Many say that's not for today. Anything they can to keep the Bible from meaning what it says. Because it does make a, a demand on your life. And so that's been altered a lot. And so the abiding that a lot of people have is not on God's terms, and it's not acceptable. Again, we don't accept that. We don't like that. Man has always, seems like, thought himself wiser than God. He's always come up with a way that he thinks the Bible should be taught rather than just the way it says it. He comes up with the idea that people aren't ready for these things, that that, that particular part of Scripture is too hard. Or all we're going to do is make people feel bad. And so he begins to leave things out because in his estimation of what people need and what people want that the Bible says, he's better able to say it his way than just say what the Bible said. Because in that sense, man's a very arrogant and proud person. See, he exalts himself above the Lord. He does it his way. He's even built churches around it. And those churches, the doctrine of many churches today, leave out a whole lot of things. Who would want to wash feet? Jesus did. 
And he said, happy are you if you do these things. And yet man begins to evaluate how that would look in his time with his friends or in his church. And I don't think we are. I don't know if we can do that or not. That, I, that's, oh. He says, well, I believe God spoke that only for that age. See, he changes what it said. Because by nature, he not only is arrogant and full of himself and conceited, but he doesn't want to humble himself to God and his word to live that way. And so he changes it. And therefore, the key to abiding is humility, being humble. It's the opposite of being proud. Pride is one of the things that the Bible says goes before a fall. Pride will keep you from knowing God. The humble shall know. They shall be taught and they shall learn and they shall glorify God. Throughout Proverbs and Psalms, it says that. But with the proud, God said he will stand afar off. And he will not relate with them. But who will he relate to? Now go to Isaiah 57. Who will God relate to? I'll tell you this morning. He relates to the humble. Now if that's true, if it's an either or thing, then there's a lot of trouble in the church. Trouble with attitudes. Trouble with the way man sees God and how he thinks God sees him. We refuse as people, we naturally refuse a whole lot of what the Bible says because we don't think that will work for us or that that is suitable for our age or our character. And the world has taught us to pick and choose what's best for you. And a lot of things that God gives us in the Bible is designed to crucify you. So you come to a crossroads with God. You don't want to do it that way, but God says this is the way. Now, you know that. You can't get around that. But the problem is you don't want to do what God said. We'd rather have a cozy religious atmosphere in which there's a guarantee of heaven for all of us, like having fire insurance. You know, we're going to escape the, the bad place because none of us are bad enough to go there. That's, man's, that's what man says. I mean, surely, we're not that bad. You're not that bad. Man tells himself that. He's trained like this from his childhood. He sees himself the way he wants himself to be seen. He measures other people by himself because he's a proud person. A proud person is one who would look down on other people. A proud man measures things by himself. He exalts his knowledge and his understanding the way he thinks things ought to be. He's proud of himself. He's glad of himself. He sees himself, well, I'm not like this publican here. You know, I fast and I do this and I do that. Because he's proud and he's arrogant. And what he does not know, that everything he does is unacceptable to God. There's not a verse in the Bible that says God relates to proud people. Not a one. He said, for example, in, in, in the New Testament, God resisteth the proud. He resisteth the proud, he says, but he gives grace to the humble, to the humble. Well, let's read what Isaiah 57 says. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For he talks about here who he relates to. 
Now you can measure yourself by this. Verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also. Now somebody is added to where he dwells, isn't it? How many of y'all remember the 91st Psalm? He that dwelleth in the secret place of Elyon, the Most High, he that dwelleth with God abides with God. All right? Now he said again in Isaiah 57 verse 15, he said, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. God will tolerate nobody trying to correct him or have a better way than him. If you come, you come with your mouth shut, your head bowed to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. It means that the people that are going to know God, enjoy God, and benefit from God are not the cocky, arrogant, self-made, important people in this world who need to be recognized, but those people who with bowed heads come to realize that they're nothing. You think about this. When God saved us, what did he see before he saved us? Did he see some important person that he needs in his kingdom? Did God see you and think, boy, I really need him? He didn't look at you and say, well, he's good enough to go to heaven. I don't need to save him because, you know, he's just good. He didn't say that either. He didn't look at any of us and say, you know, you're okay. But in describing us, God said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. There's not a good one. There's nobody good in this whole bunch. The earth is full of only bad. There's not a righteous one amongst them. Nobody is worthy of heaven. Nobody can deserve. Nobody can earn. You cannot manufacture a religious system that will save you. No man-made religious anything can save you or even bring you closer to God. Anything that is named after a man that follows what a man says will ever be right with God. I mean, why would you want to be a, you know, if, if I named churches or denominations named after people, somebody would say, why do you keep talking about that? Because they're wrong. I mean, if, if I was going to be a Lutheran, if Luther talked about Jesus, why not just talk about the Jesus? Let's call ourselves the Jesus he talked about. Why do I have to set Jesus aside and take the interpretation of Luther about Jesus and honor that? I don't want to follow a man. It's hard to bow our heads. It's hard to admit that you're not what you think you are. If you stay with the Lord and walk with the Lord and abide with him, you'll realize more and more the kind of person that you are. Especially if you're a preacher, you'll realize more and more that you're not much. Spurgeon once said this. He said, the more fit a man is for God's work, the lower he esteems himself. 
You see the fact that a lot of results that come and that have come through you didn't come because you were shrewd or smart. You realize that everything you was trying to do should have failed. And because God loves you and is going to correct you, he chastens you. And we read in Deuteronomy 8, when he chastened the nation of Israel, he said he humbled them. He made them see the kind of people they were, just like God causes us eventually to see the kind of people we are. We, like the world, were without hope and without God in a wicked and dark world. And a loving God reached down, did all the things he does to convict us and save us, and brought us out of that miry clay and brought us to himself. And what did he get? Not much. Now, all of them think there's something because we like to tell other people how saved we are. How many we got in our church? How many missionary campaigns I've been on? How long I've been preaching the gospel and how many thousand sermons I preach. We like to tell people that. We want somebody to look at us. We like to tell you how many degrees I have, how many hours I study, how important I surely must be. I mean, God got something good when he got me. How many of you know that's pride and that's arrogance? It doesn't mean a humble person cannot proclaim, well, cry aloud and spare not. You can do that, can't he? He can earnestly contend for the faith. Sometimes you can know the truth well enough in your heart and see the, the need that needs to be proclaimed that you do shout. It's not, being shouting it doesn't mean you're not humble. Sometimes it's just the way you want to get your point across. You realize that door's closed and everybody's gone home and you're by yourself, you're still not much. You're not much. You never were, and you probably never will be. You're just a vessel. And as long as God can take that mouth of yours and use it for his glory, everything will go well. But you've got to get yourself out of the way. God didn't call you to do something for him. God called you to be his child so that he can bear fruit through you. And we try so hard to do things for God. We argue our way. You, know, you never are humble when you're arguing. Paul even told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he said, you know, the servant of the Lord must not strive. There are going to be those who oppose you, and you need to correct them, but you must do it in a spirit of meekness, considering your own self also. We're not supposed to be the kind of people that intimidate other people or threaten other people or other people say, oh, or we're not the kind of people that boast of what we have. We have nothing that hasn't been given to us. And if it was given to you, what are you boasting of? That's what Paul wrote. Everything we have in this room this morning is given to us. All the good things in our past, the way we've escaped and gotten out of bad things and, and survived and spared our children and spared us from accidents and injuries and who knows what else. God did it. We have no boast. We are still, as Luke 17 said, we're unprofitable service when we've done all the things that God wants us to do. And wow, look what God did when we did that. He said, you are still an unprofitable servant. You have only done what he wanted you to do. And yet we still want to draw back and argue. It's just like praise. 
I can't even lift my hands and pray because he, my mind's figured out that is, that's not what I do. That's what God said, but you know, I'm just not there. That's, that's, not, uh, that's not me yet. So I don't, I don't think I want to do that. Well, you arrogant thing. God wants you to do it, and you say, no, uh-uh. I'm not ready for that. That's not me. See, I like me. I don't want me to go to a cross and die. That'd be a tragedy. Because, see, I got a way I figured life out. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty clever. I'm way above a lot of people. And some of the things you want me to do in the Bible, I would, I'd have to hump, uh, uh, excuse me, I'd have to lower my, uh, excuse me, uh, to do that would be hard for me to do. You know why? Because I'd have to humble myself. We sing the song, don't we sing a song occasionally that says, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will wear you out. What do you say he would do if you humble? He'll lift you up. He doesn't say ever that about the proud. There is nothing good said about pride in any form. You read in the epistles about those in Galatians, for example, who would bite and devour each other. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, well, I'm of Peter, well, I'm of Christ. Paul said, you're of Paul. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, who is Paul? Paul is a nobody. Without that anointing from God, he is just a fickle human being. Unable to do anything more than just stand on Sunday morning and preach for money. Preach for his paycheck. That's all he can do. Nothing comes out of that. Nobody cares if anything comes out of that. That's good enough for them because of the arrogance of drawing back from God and not giving place to God and his word and humbling yourself to his way. You can't walk by faith unless you're willing to humble yourself to a way that's alien to you. It's difficult. See, in Isaiah 57, your 15th verse there in front of you, he said, God said, this is who I dwell with. These are the kind of people that fellowship with me and I with them. Those who are contrite and those who are humble. But you see, this is the work that God does on every one of us. This is America. We're a proud nation. We're a proud people. We like to boast. We like to show off. We like to express ourselves and the importance or the might of ourselves. If you've ever watched 10 seconds of a professional football game, you've seen pride. A man has paid $2 million to tackle somebody, and he does it in a game, and he wants to shake his belly and flop his fist and whoo, and man, you'd think for $2 million, that's just the way of life. But he wants the camera. Where, where, where's the camera? Hey. And they say, where's the camera? Where's the camera? Why? I want to be noticed. I want to be seen. If you don't let me preach, I'm going to pout. I'm glad you didn't get to preach. You promote the spirit you are. You promote that. 
So many things about us are so full of pride. It keeps us from relating to God. God doesn't teach us to do that. God doesn't teach us to be snobs and ugly acting and in your face and wanting to get in a cage with three or four guys and be bad. This is the age we're living in. Everybody admires power and might and meanness and toughness. Look at the video game, the stupido video games. All of it, all, all of it's trash, but it's a part of the end time. It's how the devil is training children. You, you give them that stuff, you let them play with that, you're guilty. And they learn how to destroy somebody, learn how to kill that sucker or whatever they say. Now, some of you smile. I'm not smiling. You did because you got a problem. You're growing up with a warped mind. You're seeing things the way it's pleasing to you, and yet when you come to hear from God, God condemns that kind of stuff. You're either going to humble yourself to God, get on the cross, and die to your ways, or God will have to judge you. It's up to you. It's a choice. Look in Isaiah 66, just a few pages to the right, and verse 2. The second part of that verse. But to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. Now, where have you heard that word poor? Have you heard that in a sermon on the mount? Blessed are what? The poor in spirit. It doesn't mean you're poverty stricken in the sense that you don't have anything to eat. But it means that you recognize of yourself that you're not near capable enough day by day to do anything without his help day by day. We sing the song, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee because I never have enough of thee that I don't need anymore. Poor in spirit is a recognition of a human being that for him to function and walk with God the way God wants him to walk, he's got to yield himself to that. And that's the only way he can do it. He said to man, he said, I will look unto this man that is a poor and a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Are you telling me this morning that what God says should cause people to tremble? Most people don't. I don't know how many, I don't know many people that do. They can open their Bible and read it and they can close it and walk away and never give it a second thought. And yet there's some people who have become to know, who have come to know God and they recognize that it is a treasure. It is grace from the almighty. When he focuses your eyes on his word and makes you to see what he's saying to where that word affects you. You can't get away from it. It's a compelling word. It makes demands on your will that if you want to walk with him, you got to walk that way. And you know you can. You've got a lot of trash in your life that wants to keep you from doing that. He could tell you about clothes and dress. And you could say, well, I ain't going to wear some old sack around. Maybe modesty is not a part of your life. You'd rather show what you got. I mean, who doesn't in the world? 
Don't all the popular people do that? Don't they want to be seen and noticed? Is that not pride? Is that not the arrogance of this age that seeks attention from other people at the denial of God? Well, I know he may not like me to do this, but, you know, I was, oh, surely he understands. I'm just in the flesh. I mean, we're not perfect. Come on. <laughs> you just walk away from it. I'm telling you this morning what I am convinced of in my heart. I think this week more than I have ever realized the power of humility as I have this week. That God seeks out that humble, head-bowed soul to reveal himself to that person. And he begins to make him contrite. Contrite means to be crushed. He just breaks up all the junk in there and powders you down to when you look at yourself, there is nothing there that's worth promoting. I am an unprofitable servant. I am, as Paul said, I'm nobody. God didn't save me because I had some talent. He doesn't need my talents. I think he does, and I want everybody to know it, but he doesn't need my talents. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your expertise in some field. Boy, he'd be good in the church to do that. He doesn't need that. God doesn't need anybody in this room. Nobody in this room was saved because you, God needed you. He saved you because he loves you and has determined the work that he starts in you. He's going to finish. And when you get through, you'll be humble. You'll be contrite. You'll be a humble soul. If you look with me, in light of what we just said in Isaiah 57, 15, and 66, 2, if you go to the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 5, another verse, chapter 5 and 6, having to do with humility. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with what? Unless I humble myself to God, I can't even do that. You know why? Because I see everybody's flaws. There's people even today, you know it's true. You see some people coming, you'd look for a place to hide. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to relate to that person. And you don't want to speak frankly with that person either because you're afraid you'll hurt their feelings and then they won't like you. You're afraid to speak the truth in love for that very reason. We'd like to do what God said, but I just don't think it'll work right for me. At the end of verse 5, for God resisteth the proud and does what? He gives grace to the humble. Did you know that in Proverbs 16 it says, everyone that is proud is an abomination to God. How could he relate to God, let alone abide in the Lord? God doesn't abide in him. You may try to abide in the word, but God isn't abiding in you. Why? Because of pride. Is it abomination to the Lord? Psalm 21 says, a high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Would a high look be sin? Say yes. 
because the Bible said that. What is a high look? It's cockiness. You're acting cocky. Hey, how about me? That's cocky. Proud, pride. You're promoting yourself. Notice me. Look at me. Wish you were me. I wish you had my money. I wish you had my car or something. Let me put myself on display so that everybody says, whoa, good old brother Tom, what will we do without him? That'd be a form of pride. You're putting something above God's ability to make anything right. Have you know God can do without any of us? There's nobody in this room, me included, that is a necessity in God's kingdom. God can raise up stones. The prophet said, oh, Lord, I'm the last one you got. And that old woman over there, that old heifer named Jezebel, she is trying to, oh, Lord, I'm just going to eat a few wild onions down here at the creek bank. I'm just going to lay down and die. I'm the last one you got. It's over. You know what God said to him? I got 7,000 more besides you. I just started with you. You were at the top of the list. I can go, I got 7,000. That'd take a long time to get through all of them. You're not indispensable. You should be grateful. I am here at the invitation of God. Thank you, Jesus. What does he want from me? I should do that. He wants me to praise. He wants me to share, give, help, be a part of, attend. Who am I to say no? Who am I to say I'm not ready for that? Who am I to say some ignorant ball game is more important than that? Who am I? Help me, Lord, just to come to the time in my life where everything you say is exactly what I want to do. But I'm not so concerned about what people think about me because Jesus said the world's going to hate you. And he said, but rejoice. If they're speaking evil of you, you're doing something right. I've been doing something right for a while. <laughs> this is the way it works. That was this highly esteemed amongst men. Jesus said, is an abomination unto him. Title of our message is the key to abiding. You know what it is? Humility. Being humble. I can't relate to God unless I am. And I begin to look at all these scriptures and all of these things. I cannot relate to God unless I'm humble. I look at 1 Peter 5. Are you there? I gave you a long time to find it. At the end of it, he said again in verse 5, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Then he said in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. Will he? He didn't say right away though, did he? He may let you languish a while in your effort to bow your head and to submit yourself to other people, to esteem others in Philippians 2 as better than yourself, to make yourself a servant to everybody and to be a nobody. It may take a while. I can't speak for you. I wasn't raised like that. I was raised with a loud mouth. I had a free pass at the principal's office. I should have had because of the attitude. The belligerence. Sometimes you come to the church. I can look back in the years I used to preach. And, and some of the attitudes that this came out with, they didn't please God. 
I don't think God was happy with a lot of the way I said a lot of things. But he's long-suffering towards me and towards you. And he's not done with us. He's taking little children and making men out of us, making us grow up. See, St. Augustine said, it was pride that changed angels into demons. And it's humility that changes men into angels. I don't want to be an angel, but I know what he's saying. I want God's grace to lean on me heavy and give me no freedom to do anything that's not right. Because every time I do something wrong, it's a choice I made to violate what I know better than to do. And he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him in his sin. Well, why wouldn't he do what God said? Because he didn't want to. Well, why wouldn't he want to do what God said? Because he doesn't want that to be his manner of life right now. He didn't want to say, I'm sorry, or forgive me, or you can have my place. He didn't want to be nice and gentle and kind and peaceful. That's what a humble person is. He hurts nobody. He's never in the cause of some raging controversy in the church. Never. He's never somebody you have to wonder about what's he said now, what she said now. They're not involved in gossip and slander. They don't do that. They're not good enough to do that. Who are you to speak down to somebody else? Look at yourself. Take stock of yourself. Jesus said, as you would have others do unto you, you want people to talk about you, talk about others. They'll talk about you. You want to be a humble person? Just submit yourself to God. That's all you have to do. Submit yourself to God. In verse 7, he said, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Your Bible say that? But notice he said, first is humility. First. Humility, that humbleness of mind. That lowering of yourself and your self-estimation. That bragging about what you can do, what you did, how big your deer was, how big the fish was, how far you went, how many sermons. You quit all of that. I mean, we have no boast. You read in the Bible about those that boast, nothing's good said about them either. We usually boast because we want people to admire us. We want God to admire us, and God wants to correct us. See, it's difficult today. It's difficult today to humble yourself to something that you have no control over. Things that you cannot figure out. It's hard to humble yourself to something. It's hard to have faith into something that makes no sense. I mean, how do you lay hands on the sick and they recover? Why would a whole church, a church never in this history ever practice that? Because they can't figure that out. How could that be? I don't care if God did say it. We're not going to do it because we can't figure it out. Man's like that. Things that he cannot understand or things that he has no control of, things that his natural understanding cannot relate to, he can't humble himself to something that denies that. He just can't do it. 
He's been trained like that in the world. His parents trained him. The school system trained him. Everybody's trained him. All the, the media has trained him. He just can't do it. John told us, he said, you know, everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, he said, none of that is of God. And we try so hard to make our children be so promoted that everybody writes articles about them and looks at them, whoa. And we train them that way so they grow up that way. And it's hard for God to deal with them because they're somebody important. We did that as parents because it just seemed right. A loving parent would promote pride in their child. Sometimes it's hard to correct children. You'd be still, I'm talking. You're not free to talk right now. I'm talking. And to make them know they have to submit to something over them. Well, the poor little thing might go to bed hungry. To, oh, bless her heart. You just chatter on, child. No. When you talk about disciplined children, you're talking about putting, if I can say it this way, you're talking about putting them in their place. We cannot tolerate that. We won't allow that. You can't do that. That's not acceptable here. They have to learn to submit to authority. When you don't discipline your children and you leave them alone, they don't stay here long. They don't stick around here long. They don't fellowship. They're here and they're gone. They've already been taught in a, by somebody they know, their parents, that all these things that God says are not that big a deal. Their parents didn't live it. Why? Because of their pride. I don't need it. I can't see it. I can't relate to it. It doesn't make sense to me. Let me give you a couple of examples. What about Abraham? Y'all remember Abraham? Abraham. Now, he was my age. Well, he was a year older than I am when God said, it's time for you to leave home. Now, he lived a long time, so it's all right. Abraham, it's time for you to leave home. Now, I'm sure Abraham, I'm established here. I know all the routines at home. I know where everything is. I've got it made, and my daddy will die in a couple hundred years, and I'll get all of this. Now, God spoke to me. He must have known who he was, but the Lord spoke to him, and he said, go somewhere you've never been. Now, can you imagine our minds today? Here's why we don't do it. Why would he ask me to do that? See, I can't relate to that. In my natural mind. Well, why would he ask me to do that? I and mean, what's wrong with here? I mean, I can serve God right here, can I? Come on. And so he begins to withdraw from this and that, and he's, he can't relate to going somewhere he can't see. What's over there? What would I do? How would I make it? How would I make a living over there? I couldn't start all over. So he talks himself out because of who he thinks he is and the wisdom that he thinks he has is greater than what God said. So instead of going, he stays. But in Abraham's case, he went in there and packed his gear and left. And then it came time for Sarah. He married Sarah, prettiest woman in all of the world. And one day when she was well past her childbearing years, she was what we'd call an older lady. She must have looked good because Abimelech wanted to make her his wife. He said, Abraham, she's going to have your child. What's his mind saying? Whoa. I can't relate to that. 
I'm talking about when God brings us to himself, a whole lot of what God is telling us, we can't relate to. You've got to believe it. You can't even prove it. You don't get to see it happen first. You've got to believe. For example, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and you must believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You don't have a right to say, well, he could, he might not. That's not what he said. When you say, well, he could, but he probably won't, you're lying. You're lying. You have no right to lie. You lie to save yourself. That's a form of pride and arrogance. All you can do is say, God said it, that's right. If God said it, that's right. If God said it, that's right. Who am I to say no? Abraham, your wife, is going to have your child. And I can only imagine, I can only imagine with my mind. But he did not say, uh, can we discuss this matter a little further? Because after all, in the natural sense of life, I'm past those years myself, and I know she is. So we never had children when people have children. Now, how in the world? Well, God said, well, it's not in the world. Well, how in heaven? That's better. Can this be? Well, you have to believe him and find out because if you don't believe him, you cannot please him. Without faith, what? How about my preachers over here? Without faith, you can't please him, can you? You have no right to draw back and say, well, I don't know. If you do that, you're not believing. You're trying to figure it out. So Abraham said, all right. Sarah laughed. That's another story I'm not even about to get into, but she laughed. What about when Abraham had this boy that was promised? And when this boy was old enough, big enough to run around like these preachers over here. When this boy was that big, God said, now I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And I want you to take him to a place that I will show you. And I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice unto me. What do you think goes on in his mind now? This is years later. He's seen a couple of miracles happen. Ur happened. That worked out. Sarah came. That's really worked out. Wow. Now he wants me to take this child to promise and kill him? Now, most of the people I've ever known would say, I, I, can't, I can't handle that. And that's it. That's my decision. I will not believe that. I will acknowledge you said that. I will not believe it. I am aware that you said it. I agree that those are your words and you said that. But from my side, I am unwilling to take him out there and kill him. I love him too much which is natural. But you know what he did? He went there and got that boy and said, come on, let's go. We're going somewhere. We're going to offer God a sacrifice. And you know the rest of the story. You know, the, the ram caught in the bush and he raised his hand and God stopped him. You know what God said to him when he stopped him? He said, now I know that you fear me, that you reverence me more than that boy, more than who you think you are, more than your own life, and behind your action, what you just were willing to do, 
behind the scenes in your mind, you were saying, I will sacrifice this boy, but you will have to raise him from the dead because you said my seed is going to be like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the sea. And if I take his life, you would have lied to me. And I know you don't lie. So whatever this means, you're going to raise him from the dead if he dies. And he's called the father of the faithful for the obvious reasons. But he didn't hold back. And he was a rich man. He didn't think he was important or that all of this or that. He just did whatever the Lord told him to do. That was the way it worked. What about Noah? That's a good story, isn't it? What if you had been Noah? Genesis 6, the Bible says that wickedness on the earth was great. Immorality and violence covered the earth just like in the day we're in. As it was in the days of Noah... It shall be in the end. Genesis 6 tells us specifically how it was then, and that's the way it is right now. And what he did then, we can make application now. Noah, I want you to build an ark. I would have said, of what? But he knew what an ark was. In this case, it was a big rectangular box. Had no rudder. You couldn't guide it. You'd have to trust the Lord for where it went. And it wasn't made like a ship, in spite of all the pictures you've seen. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But he said, I want you to make me an ark. I want you to make an ark because I'm going to cause rain to come from heaven and water come up out of the earth and to flood this world. This is a story that nobody in the church believes except for a few. This is a little cute little story, but it doesn't have any real meaning because it didn't happen. But it did happen. And the picture we're supposed to see, looking back on it from where we are now, way back then, we see how a man that pleased God responded to God. He didn't have any reasons for not doing it. He didn't object to what God said. He simply, the Bible said, he got his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and he said, come on, boys, we're going to build an ark. And I'm sure those boys said, what? Yeah, it's going to rain. God's going to judge the earth. What are you talking about? Rain, what's rain? It never rained before. What's rain? And then water's going to come up out of the earth, and they couldn't relate to that. You couldn't either. But he didn't ask just anybody. Noah was a righteous man. He found grace in the sight of the Lord. He started chopping down trees. He started making things fit together. I don't know how you'd make an ark, but he did it. And I'm sure the townsfolk came out, tour buses came by. What's this guy doing? What's he doing? What is that thing? And Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so he proclaimed. He said that God's going to judge the world. He says it today. Same thing. And the only hope you have is this ark, which is the type of Jesus Christ. It'll hold everybody he calls into it. It'll hold them all. And it'll be pitched on the outside with pitch, which is impervious to water. And it'll keep the destroying efforts of the world out. And it will stay afloat as long as God wants it to. And every animal that goes into that ark immediately has a change of nature. Lions and lambs will lie down together in Christ. He makes us all one. He changes us. That's the message.
the story is all about humility. Noah began to do all that, and people made fun of him, mock him. Hey, big no, what's going on today? Ha, ha, ha. I bet it's going to stink in there with all them animals. Ha, ha, ha. I think the Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall have great rewards by the world. No, I said they'll suffer persecution. Jesus said the world is going to hate you. Think it not strange. Oh, but we do because we can't control that. Proud people who heady, important people can't control that. I don't know how to control my tomorrows, my destiny. I can't control my destiny. How can God say, just put your hand in the plow and, and trust in the Lord and humble yourself and he'll make... Nobody taught me that in school. That doesn't compute in my mind. I think my mind needs to be renewed. I just, that used to be in the Bible. So this chopping trees down and all of a sudden the rain began to come, a thunderclap hit and all those mockers and scoffers in the last days they heard that noise, they turned around and looked and that door slammed up in the side of that ark nobody pulled it shut nobody went out there and picked it up it just supernaturally it just went into the side of the ark and it was sealed forever those on the outside gnashed their teeth trying to get in. But Lord, but Lord, we remember you. Lord, we heard. Lord, we heard him preach. I never knew you. Time is up. The only people that went in that ark were people who humbled themselves to the word of God. The people who acted like what God said is true. God who calls those things that be not as though they were. If God said it's going to be like that, it's going to be like that. Doesn't look like it, does it? But it will be. I'm not going to fight that. I'm not going to try to figure that out. I'm going to prepare myself for that. Because there's nothing else that's right. Humility. A man who would humble himself to God like that. How about Jericho? You remember Jericho? In Joshua chapter 6. Would you turn over there? I want to read something. Joshua Yeshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was straightly shut up, verse 1, because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua. Now Joshua is a leader, the one who followed Moses. That'd be tough. He said, see, Joshua, I have given into your hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Now, stop with me just a minute. Now, what's Joshua looking at? He's looking at a citadel. He's got walls 12 feet thick and high enough that you couldn't get up there. You'd all be killed trying to get in. It's a fortress. And God, however God spoke to people in those days, God spoke to Joshua and said, See, look, Joshua, I have given you this place. Past tense. Did he say that? You have to agree with me on this one. He said, I have given you this place. Did it look like it? It was still there, wasn't it? The people were still on the walls. Joshua was standing down here looking at it. And God said, I have given you that and the king and everything in it. I've given it to you. What would Joshua think? He can't make that happen. He's not smart enough to know how to deal with that. He has nothing here to offer on how this will work. 
No clue how this is ever going to work. God didn't ask him to give him a clue. God didn't ask Joshua for advice. He simply said, Joshua, if you're going to lead people, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. Joshua, only thing he can do this right is just to say, okay. In verse 3, he said, and you shall compass the city. That means go around it. All you men of war and go round about the city once. Thus shall you do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall go around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast on the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. All right, Mr. Wise, educated man, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to tell your men what's going to happen? God alone spoke to him, so he goes back and he tells his men. What's he going to tell them? We're going to take Jericho. They're thinking, man, it's going to be tough. Because see, in my wise system here. I'm bad enough maybe get up there at night, but boy, it's going to be tough staying up here. We're going to have to, what are we going to, how are we going to, and Josh says, well, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to go out tomorrow and march around the city one time. We're just going to march around it. And the guys are saying, yeah. And then we're going to, then we're going to come back to camp. And then we're going to do it six days in a row, six straight days. We're going to walk around the city. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times, and we're going to blow the ram's horn. And when they hear that sound, all the people will shout. That could be a pretty loud shout. A million people. That make a pretty good noise. Whoa! Woo! And the Bible said the walls will fall down 12 foot thick, and then you'll go in and take over. And everybody up there looks like they're bad to the bone standing on that wall. I mean, they look like some of them wrestlers. And a natural man, a natural man standing down here, a man who's been a slave for 400 years, making bricks, just met God in the last 40 years of his life. And God is marvelous, yes, look what he did in Egypt, but Joshua... This doesn't register. And what happened? They did it. They didn't hold back and said, half of us are going back to camp because we don't think that's very smart, and we don't think you know what you're talking about. People talk like that to preachers too. Sometimes you just have to stay with what you got. And they went out, marched around that place, shouted, and the walls fell down flat, and it's there for us to read. And for anybody who says, well, I don't believe that, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. They fail anyway. (laughs) They fail anyway. You were back at camp about to get judged. What about Naaman? Remember the Syrian man that had leprosy? He wasn't going to dip himself in that River Jordan. Look at all these other places around here that I could. He was thinking things out. He knew he had a problem, a physical problem, couldn't be healed. And he went to that old prophet over there in Israel. Maybe he could heal me. And next thing you know, he says, go dip yourself in the River Jordan. I've been to the River Jordan. It's, a, it's not a very exciting looking place. It might be up near the Sea of Galilee where it starts, but down where we were with the muskrats and the catfish all around, it wasn't much. 
So he said, I can't do that. You know why he couldn't? Because he's proud. He don't want to dip himself in that river. He don't want to go to that church. He don't want to praise like that. He's not going to sing like that or clap. I'm not going to do that. that ain't, that's not me. See, you not only have no relationship with God yourself, you think you do. You act like you do, but you don't because your life has never changed in all these years. You're still the same person you always were because you don't want to do what God said because you have a better way of doing it. That's why there's no abiding relationship. You're trying to abide with God through attendance and through reading and giving and helping and participation. But you can do all of that without a relationship to God. You can preach sermons, be a pastor of a church without a relationship to God. Just learn how to do it. Schools, you know, can make a preacher out of a lot of people. People can be preachers and live like dogs. Deny the Lord that bought them. Change what the gospel says because they don't practice it themselves. They don't want people in their church to live that way. They're arrogant and proud. The only people that will ever relate to God are the humble. Those who throughout scripture bow their knee and bow their hearts before God. But old Naaman, he finally did. He dipped himself in the Jordan and he got humbled. How many of you know that was a humbling experience to see that? I've seen leprosy when I was in India once. I saw it on a guy, very loathsome disease. And all of a sudden he looked down. He came out of that old dirty river. He looked at his hands and he was clean. Do you suppose he fell on his face? That humbled him. It might take something like that to humble us. But we're going to be humble before the Lord comes. I'm not saying God has a contrite machine. He runs you through and you, you, know, you go in ugly on one side and come out humble on the other. But God can and has a program of how he can change us. God doesn't want any advice from us. He doesn't want us to try to tell him how the church ought to be run. He wants us to earnestly contend for the faith and do it with meekness and gentleness. But we're not here to change anything he said. And people think, well, you're legalistic. I don't care what they say. If we're saying what he said, that's all we have to do. And that's all we want to do. Peter, pay the taxes. How are we going to do it? Go down the sea. Take your hook. He didn't even say put a worm on it. He said take your hook, cast it into the water. And he said, and the first fish you catch will have money in his mouth to pay your taxes with. First one. He probably stayed there to see how many more he could catch. And I don't know. But he said the first one. Do you suppose Peter, who was a fisherman by trade, could understand that? Just like in Luke chapter 5, he had worked, fished all night long, toiled all night long, hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, cast your nets out for a catch. Peter did say, Lord, we've toiled all night long. Nevertheless, at thy word, I'll do it again. Because... When you speak, there's something beyond ordinary knowledge. Whatever a man thinks is, is absolutely zero when you compare it to what God says. Because God is always right, we're always wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. He cast his net, caught the fish. He threw his hook in the water. He didn't even say how much of the water you threw it in. Was flapping on the shore, and all of a sudden, here comes a big wave, boom, caught a fish. 
Not only am I going to eat the fish, but I'm going to pay my taxes. He must not have owed much if that's all it took. <laughs> now, let's close with this. Micah. Micah 6, see if you can find it. Micah, and then Nahum, and then the Z-boys, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. Have you found it yet, Micah chapter 6? Look at this. This is for everybody in this room. And now what does the Lord require of thee? He has shown thee, O man, hopefully to some degree, this morning you've seen something. Something. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And now what does the Lord require of thee? Three things. Do what's fair and do what's right. Be fair and just. Love mercy. Mercy is how God bails you out when you don't deserve to be bailed out. Mercy is when God comes to your assistance and brings his grace to help in time of need. He has mercy on us. Love that. Do that to others. If you can't be merciful to others, God will not be merciful to you, James says. And then the last thing he said was, walk how? Walk humbly with thy God. Not arrogant, not puffed up, not resisting, not standing back, not saying I can't, it won't work, that's not for, don't say a thing. Be still. Let God be God. If he says it's so, then it's so. If he says he will, then believe he will. If he said, by the stripes of Jesus, you're healed, you're healed. If he said, you can do all things through Christ, you can do all things through Christ. If he said, whatever you put your hands to will prosper, it will prosper. Say that. But don't let your mind rule you anymore in taking you away from God. If God says he wants you to worship him, then don't say, well, I don't want to do that. This That's arrogance. Lift your hands and worship God. We're not going to do it all day. You might go home to it all day. That's all right. I have a good time out here when you're not here. Boy, I did this week. I blistered some of you. Not really. I blistered myself. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. What does God want from us? Before we go home this morning, what does he want? He wants you to be fair. Be honest and just. Treat everybody right, everybody, the rich or the poor. Love mercy. Enjoy seeing people get relieved and getting help and, and enjoy the kindness and the goodness of God in doing things for people or people doing the same thing for each other. Love that. And walk humbly before God. Bow your head and say, you are altogether right. And I am altogether wrong. And I intend to walk with you this way, recognizing that I have no worth of my own. I am glad to be here. And when it comes time for a need for us, having been armed with that, and it comes a national need, a local need, a church need, maybe the need would be something like What's that thing? It's a building. Here's what we do.
Here's a promise. <clears throat> if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, quit fighting, arguing, holding back, demanding and acting like a heathen, get out of that political mess that you get in and trying to promote this and over. That's arrogance. We're not called to be like that. Meekness and humbleness and lowliness of mind, that's us. We got to work on it. I do. But if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God said, then, then will I hear from heaven and then will I heal the land you, your church, whatever it is you're praying for, I'll fix it. Now, we're here today with the free will. Everybody can make a choice this morning. We all do. You chose to come here. You chose what you're wearing. You chose where you're going. We're all without excuse if we don't choose the Lord. You may have to say today, I recognize as I look at myself in the light of what you've done and who you are, <clears throat> I look at my life, the way I live, and the way I conduct my affairs, the way I treat my wife, family, kids, or parents. And I've been everything but humble. I ask you in Jesus' name to give me a humble spirit, to make me to realize that you are all. And as Gideon said, I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Help me to be like that. Help me to understand that. Lord, help me to be like the public. Remember the publican who went into the temple to pray? The Pharisee said, I thank God I'm not like Hamilton and that bunch of his. And he looked at that bunch of his and him, that publican, and the Bible said he could not even lift up his eyes to heaven. I don't even deserve to look up that way. I'm not good enough to even look up. All I can do is bow my head and ask God to have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said he made it. He went home. Well, that proud, accomplished, cocky, know-it-all, he didn't make it. The centurion said, my servant is sick. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. You know what the centurion said? I'm not worthy. Those are the words in Matthew 8, 80. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm no good. Not for the likes of you, but I know this about you. If you'll just say a word, my servant's healed. That's all you've got to do, and that's all he needs. And what Jesus said for that man who humbled himself like that, he said, I haven't found that kind of faith in all of Israel. A man who only needs a word from God and is willing to submit to it. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, as we have gathered here this morning in Jesus' name, we have asked for your, for your word to be clear to us. We have prayed before we got out here. We have prayed before we came here. We have prayed for grace, the revelation, the illumination of our minds so that we can understand what you're saying and take advantage of this hour and this moment, a time when you have chosen to speak to whoever is here clearly, plainly. Lord, we don't want to miss heaven by having wrong conceptions of what we think we believe. We don't want to think that we're good enough to have anything freely. 
without recognizing that all we have, you've given it. We do want to humble ourselves before you, dear Lord. We want you to be honored by our lives and by the way we live. And we thank you this morning for your salvation, for what Jesus did, and that he did it for us. And without that, it would be an aimless exercise of futility to even be here. But we're here with a purpose. And now help us to gain more and more of an understanding of it. Bless these folks as they go home today. Bless them as they stay, whatever they do. And as we approach this time of communion and we recognize what Jesus did, let our thoughts be humble and grateful and thankful about the free gift of salvation. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.